Hi, welcome back to Unleashing the Vault with Dan Lindstedt. I'm your host, uh, Cindy Meyerson, and we're glad to be back with you today. Dan, would you uh, care to start us off here on this topic of building a new Data Vault team? Sure thing. Thanks, Cindy. I'm Dan Lindstedt, by the way, in case you hadn't guessed, a little intro there. Uh, today, we're going to talk about building a new Data Vault team and what it really means. And this, again, is at a business level. So we're going to try to address the business components and what you need from your team and how to get the team started and all those kinds of things. So when you stand or plan to stand up a new team, you, you want to plan your objectives. And one of the things you want to do is make sure that you understand what your team is doing now. Having the metrics around how your team works together and what kinds of outputs they can produce in the ways of working. Very, very important to have metrics. In order to shift the ways of working, you first must understand what is broken. You know, I mean, you can't optimize what you don't measure and you can't measure what you don't define and you can't define what you don't understand. And the whole, the whole CMM principles are there. And this has been proven time and time again. And if you look at Agility and discipline agile delivery, it's no different. They say the same thing. It's, you, you talk about sprint retrospectives. Well, in order to retrospect, in order to look at what you've done, you have to have something to measure it against. And this can also be likened to uh, scientific experiments where you've got a control as a baseline and you've got the outcomes that you want to measure against the control. You know, controls are are what they call expected results and allow you to say, you know, we have measured the outcomes against the control and the control says X and the, the outcomes say Y and there's a delta between X and Y and here's what it is. So this is really what we're going to get into today. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, what planning requires, what the setup of the objectives require and some metrics and some other things. And Cindy, do you have any ideas on how to set up the objectives for your team and what you want to accomplish and over what period of time? First of all, I think you have to have realistic objectives. Um, I think we tend to over overestimate what we can actually deliver. And to me, going back to the basics of what exactly is our team doing today? What are the objectives that we're trying to accomplish today? And then um, stepping up and saying, all right, what are the uh, ways of working as defined in disciplined agile delivery, for example, which is what uh, Data Vault 2 embraces as an agile method. So well, I believe when you actually look at the processes that your team is going through and the way it's organized today, gives you some great insight, obviously, into things that are broken. Uh, but the other piece of that is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, as you start to look at your current processes, if you're not measuring how long it takes for you to do something today, for example, uh, profiling data or sitting with the team and the business to uh, develop your requirements or your use cases. If you really don't have any grasp on what it's taking your team to get these things accomplished today, if you're not capturing the areas where the team is being delayed or or is delayed themselves, 
because maybe they get wrapped around the axle on something, you're actually not, I would say, not really prepared to take on a new approach because you really don't understand the approach you've been using and you haven't measured it. I think the worst thing that can happen, quite honestly, if you're switching gears and you're trying to move to a data vault implementation and get your team around the concept of disciplined agile, I think the worst thing that you can do to your team is simply pick up and start this, quote, new way of working (laughs) without helping them understand how much time is being taken because your business wants to know, business understands numbers. They understand numbers and and they want to make sure that they have a way uh, to discern whether or not your team is improving, whether this new way of working is actually working. (laughs) So um, I always like to try to go back and make sure the team understands their current process because just because you step through a series of tasks on a repeatable basis in what you're doing today does not mean the team understands or appreciates what those tasks are supposed to accomplish. And therefore, that might be one of the reasons why those tasks are taking you longer. But if you haven't measured, you don't know how long that is. So those are sort of my observations, I would say, um, over the years. Yeah, this brings to mind a number of things. uh, And some of them are cliche in our industry. In other words, don't fix what isn't broken. (laughs) But if you don't know what's broken, how are you going to even approach it, right? It's, you know, you're learning to ride a bicycle and uh, you learn to ride on the handlebars. And you can only go so fast before you establish uh, what's called a sonic wobble, if I'm not mistaken, and then then you fall off. Well, unless you're actually taught that that's not necessarily the correct or quote best way, uh, then you know you you don't you don't know that it's broken that that the way you're doing the bike riding is busted, and of course, if you move to the seat where you're supposed to be, you can go faster, right? And again, you get to a certain point where, again, sonic wobble may happen if your bike is out of balance and you go uh, over a certain uh, speed barrier, right? But these are the boundaries of the metrics. How far can you push the metrics before, you know, you need to change the design or change the way you're going? And you, you get into some of these seated bicycles where you've got a lower center of gravity, you're sitting down between the two rear wheels, you have one front wheel, then you can go faster, right, than than a two-wheeled bicycle and without a sonic wobble. And and again, you get to a certain point at which the threshold is met. So the team, it's the same type of way. How much can you do and where do you know what is broken? How do you know what the team is doing is broken? Well, the only way to know is to measure And we talked about this in one of the podcasts previously called Estimate to Actuals. And a lot of uh, business uh, project managers, to use an old school term, the scrum masters, agile masters, whatever you want to call them these days, they understand this principle of estimate to actuals or, or in other words, run rate. You know, if you're not estimating or your team isn't estimating, it's going to take X weeks or X days or X hours for certain tasks then how do you know what a baseline should be? How do you know if you've gotten better or worse 
right? Your team should be estimating the tasks. Now, I'm not talking about micromanage and I'm not talking about micro task estimation. You know, it takes five minutes to change a name in a field. You know, no, that's not what I'm talking about measuring. I'm talking about a, a either a milestone estimate or minor milestone estimates or prerequisite estimates along along a um, either a waterfall or even an agile. Yeah, Dara, I just said waterfall. We still have some waterfall requirements that have to happen. You know, you have to put data in the database before you can get data out of the database. That's a waterfall requirement. There's really no way around it. And before you can put data in a database, you should probably build some sort of model or storage mechanism or something to dump it into, right? So, so understanding how these things happen, even at a minor milestone level is important, even in an agile world, being able to estimate that how long it's going to take to do the task, you know, uh, to establish this work product and rolling that up to an aggregate. Because on these teams, even in the data mesh sense, where you have five, six, seven, eight people on an individual team, you, you've got to know the capabilities of production. And, th and then, then you can gauge based on the actual measurements, you know, and, and this, this requires the team to change the way they're thinking. They, they have to get over this hurdle of, oh, gee, it's going to take longer if I write down every task and how long it took me to do. But that's not the point. We're, we're not measuring every task. We're measuring at a higher level. If it took you four hours to do something, we want to know about it because otherwise we can't measure the actual time that it takes to actually accomplish things. And, you know, we were doing this back in the, in the 90s, and they called it cycle time reduction and lean initiatives. And these days, you know, then it became a, a continuous improvement. And these days now it's, it's all agile and discipline agile and everything else. But the practices and the principles remain the same. Some of the foundational concepts and core ideas remain the same. You don't want to over measure, but you don't want to under measure. So learning how to measure your own skills when you're on a team and then learning how to roll up all of those measurements as a team lead is very, very important. So understanding the way you work, how long it takes you to work and being able to give accurate estimates and then measuring those to actuals. And, and what I mean by that to bring this full circle on estimate to actuals is the team should improve their estimate to actual ratio over time. If you're applying sprint retrospectives successfully and you're applying them in, in such a way that you actually are working on what you find is quote going wrong, you make corrections to that. What you really want to know from the measurements is whether or not the correction was successful. In other words, we, we corrected this way of working this way. We, we made this change. We estimated that it would take two hours and it took six hours to get this done. So we modified the ways of working to do X instead of Y. And then the next time you go through it, oh, wait a minute, we thought it would reduce six hours to four hours, but instead it made six hours in the actual sense, in the actual world with the same person doing the work, it now took eight or 10 hours. Well, what did we do wrong? Well, that was the wrong wrong decision, right? We, we, we've changed the ways of working in the wrong way. And you gotta be acceptable to this. We made a mistake idea. And, and then go back and say, well, you know, it was six hours in method A 
in ways of working A and, and 10 hours in, in ways of working B. So B is not the right choice. Now we're going to readjust it and we're going to try C. Usually you can get good at this. And, and, and usually in the beginning, you'll find out you do make mistakes and your ways of working might get a little longer and that's a problem. And then you adjust them. And then all of a sudden you go from six hours down to two hours and you see an unexpected acceleration. And this is where, you know, the real optimization starts to take place. And then you go, aha, there's a best practice here that we can repeat. And that's where we, we, we want to say, okay, look, we're working with a single team when we start setting up a team for Data Vault 2.0 or the solution-based uh, enterprise. And, and the single team should be a, a set of leads, right, in, in reality, that establish the best practices, that establish new ways of working, that establish paradigm shifts, because Data Vault is a paradigm shift. And, and from these metrics and from these ideas, you should be documenting, this is the right way to make this change. And this ended up being the wrong way. So we don't want other teams going down the wrong path. Or if another team is already doing something that echoes, you know, what increased the time from six to 10 hours, then you want to change that behavior, that way of working across multiple teams. It doesn't matter if your teams are are split if you have distributed governance, as long as you have governance. Uh, what matters is, are the teams open-minded? Are they willing to learn new ways of working? And this is where agility really takes shape. This is where paradigm shifts begin to happen. But you should have a lead team and all of these best practices in ways of working should be documented and documented in a corporate wiki that is for all to see, whether it's the business analysts or the C-levels or the directors and so on. So the progress, right? Best practices are only best practices if they work in general across 80% of your organization or more. And so that's how that goes. And they should be living and they should be breathing and they should be changing with the team as the team moves forward. Again, certain teams will learn new things. Now, these best practices that I'm talking about, some of them come from the data vault methodology. We give you foundations, we give you a basis for ways of working that get you started in the right direction. But then, as always, best practices need to be adapted to the way the organization works. And this is vitally important because organizational culture has to be taken into account, right? Some organizations do X and Y in a project or establishing requirements while orga other organizations do Z and P and D, D and Q, right? So the best practices need to be able to be altered and changed or adapted to make sure that they work within the organization. Now, keep in mind, we're using the term best practices as opposed to standards, right? Standards are something different that everyone must follow. Best practices are adaptable and should be, and should be living and breathing, not written in concrete, not written in stone for all time, but they should be developed and maintained. This is the continuous improvement idea that you see in agility and agile, right? So one of the things that goes along with these small teams, uh, what we call strike teams, or what we've been referring to as strike teams, is the idea that the team is should not be afraid to make mistakes while learning, but there should really be a guidance team across the enterprise. If you're looking at enterprise analytics, there should be a, a set of leads that establish the best practices and the rest of the team should really follow the leads and the lead examples. 
So understanding integrated enterprise analytics is really a difficult task. You have to think about the corporation at a corporate level, and this requires a different thought process. So learning how to focus on the business objectives along with the ways of working in conjunction with the optimization paths on these uh, processes can be challenging, right? Even though you're in a technical implementation area, you've really got to focus on the business objectives in getting data out. Otherwise, you get stuck in analysis paralysis. And that's that's the other mind trap or teen trap that you really shouldn't get stuck in is this idea of analysis paralysis. Now, finally, on this particular thing, learning how to get the same productivity out of multiple and split teams around the world is very, very important because these split teams have, they embody the, the notion of agility or data mesh called distributed governance, which is important. But sometimes in a global organization, most of these teams operate in different cultures. And that should be taken into account as well. Now, I'm not saying that the best practices should be different in every country. That's not quite what I'm saying. And, and, and it's easy to walk away with that idea, but that's not really what I'm focused on. What I'm saying is the best practices should be centered on the business objectives. When they're centered on the business objectives, most business objectives, regardless of culture, are the same around the world, right? And, and, and in most businesses, you can say, well, profitability is business objective number one, right? And <laughs> reducing overhead is business objective number two. That's not true in government agencies and some other uh, you know, not not-for-profit organizations. They're they're not profit-focused, but they all share common objectives at a corporate level, uh, regardless of the culture. And so, some of those best practices, or majority of them, should be focused on those business objectives, and they should be shareable, regardless of culture. That's when you know you have a winner in terms of the ways of working, when you can walk into another culture, walk into another part of the organization, and say to the team, "Hey, look, give this a go." And then all of a sudden you see these estimate to actual ratios come in line with some of the ways that you've already experienced in other teams that are following those best practices. So this is sort of what, what it means. And, and understanding how all of this fits into the data mesh teaming concepts is important. There's, there's a lot said around data mesh teaming um, that basically follows, you know, years and years of best learning practices. And I don't, I don't want to throw that out because this is very, very important to understand that distributed governance is there, uh, agility is there, discipline, agile development, retrospectives are there. They're still strong and they're very, very important on understanding how to optimize the team. But, but before you even build a team, it's important to understand these core concepts. Now, what what if a group is new to Data Vault, Cindy? What do you what do you think your recommendations might be if they're new to Data Vault? What what would you uh, suggest that they do? First of all, I think I would suggest that an idea of the high level tasks that they do on a they perform on a regular basis, an idea of how long those tasks are taking. It goes back to measurement. I think when you talk to teams and you talk um, to the business about measuring how um, a, a development team is doing, oftentimes or we used to measure in lines of code, right? But 
this is a different environment today and it has been for a couple of decades things have been shifting and moving in an agile fashion you know going back to lean initiatives these things that you know as a software industry we recognize needed to change in the way that developers work together and especially the way they collaborated with the business and i think it can be a daunting task when you ask a team to start measuring and they want to get down to these uh, very granular tasks that they expect, as you said before, to measure. Uh, I'm talking about high level tasks, things like, you know, how long does it take you to uh, run uh, requirements or a use case gathering meeting for a specific, uh, you know, outcome? How long does it take you to uh, profile data? when you get a new data set in? How long does it take you to profile data with a specific functional user and for a very specific reason? Uh, for example, you're working with finance data, but now you're gonna take some of that data and you're gonna look at it from the marketing perspective. How long does that take to shift gears and shift the way you're thinking and work with the, with the marketing functional area? versus the finance functional area. To me, these are high level tasks. You know, how long does it take the team to, you know, develop a few, if you're working toward data vault, you know, a few hubs, links, and satellites, how well do they understand, you know, the data they're working with? And are they going through the process of actually following data vault methodology with regard to starting with the business before they actually start writing anything or building anything or modeling anything, right? Do they understand the business concepts? But these are high level task measurements that I believe begin to get refined as the team uh, gets better. In other words, if you're looking at your retrospective and you're saying, well, it took us, you know, four and a half hours to actually get these use cases refined, maybe the next step that you go through with your team as you're starting to build up and establish your measurements is, okay, well, what exactly did we do? Now let's start breaking down uh, into a bit more grain with regard to what that task actually entails to find out which part of that task was taking longer. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an incremental, it's an iterative process of defining metrics and getting the fine grain metrics uh, derived uh, and exposed that are actually contributing to the team's ability to deliver and impacting their uh, sprint outcomes, if you will. That's, that's one thing. In other words, we say don't boil the ocean. It doesn't just apply to the amount of data we're pulling in. It, it also applies to the way that we approach what we're going to measure as a team so that we don't overwhelm the team. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, so what we're talking about, just to recap the first three things that we've been discussing, decide what your objectives at a business level or a corporate level or both are, then start small with a strike team. So follow the data mesh principles, establish a cross-functional team with four to eight people max. You know, when you, when you get a team that's too large, 10, 12, whatever, then you begin to have issues uh, and then develop ways of working best practices in a common shared wiki, distribute it uh, for practice across multiple shared teams and see how it goes and have all of the teams that are 
using those uh, ways of working best practices contribute to modifications to the best practices. There should be some form of update process or procedure uh, for ensuring that everyone learns together because more heads are better than one and the best practices need to be modified so that all of the teams achieve common goals and, and do better uh, all, all the time. So now we're gonna get into a couple different things uh, which we've addressed here. So get trained in, in Data Vault 2.0 is the next item on the list. So those were the first three. Uh, this is the fourth one here. We, we strongly encourage you uh, to go to the CDVP2, and let's explain the acronym for just a second. CDVP2 stands for Certified Data Vault Practitioner 2.0. So it's Data Vault 2.0 Practitioner Level. And we really take that to heart. In the training that we, we provide, we incorporate uh, practitioner level training so that people learn the model uh, and the modeling components, as well as the methodology components and the architectural components uh, that really talk about the solution build. It isn't just about the modeling. It isn't just about moving data from point A to point B and what you should do with it. Uh, it isn't just about the architecture or the design. It's about all of this encompassing, including the best practices that I mentioned before that help your team uh, succeed and move forward give you foundational ways of working that you can then ingrain and, and build on and, of course, adapt as a best practice level uh, and really work at running efficient teams across how this works. Now, um, the next point that we have on this is get trained in discipline agile delivery. Now, this is a bit interesting. Some teams run what they call scaled agile framework in other words, SAFE, and a lot of government agencies will use SAFE because it's mandated. Uh, but And, and SAFE have, has bits and pieces of discipline agile delivery in it or embodied in it, uh, but there are pieces in SAFE that are really government-oriented and really kind of sticky in the process. And I believe you mentioned this in one of the last podcasts, and I think going forward, we should probably have a single podcast dedicated to SAFE uh, and discipline agile delivery and some of the differences there. But we leverage discipline agile delivery uh, inside of the data vault methodology at its heart because it is effective. It has been tuned. It's been proven to uh, run in the best and most efficient ways possible. Uh, I think uh, the next item on our list here in terms of developing a new data vault group uh, is to establish good governance procedures. And I want to stop and talk about this one for just a few minutes uh, before we move on to the last one on this list. But, but I think good governance is absolutely essential to just about anything you're doing. Uh, and especially in an enterprise level, if you've got two different teams following two different governance practices, you're going to get two different outcomes. That's just the way it works. If you've got and an example of this is say, say you're building a car, an automobile, right? And you've got two side-by-side -side manufacturing assembly plants. And one plant uh, says they can produce a car, one car every six months. Let's just give that as a metric. And here we go again with metrics, right? Understanding the metrics is, is vital. Uh, and then the second plant, which is side-by-side, -side, owned and operated by the same company, says, well, we can produce the same car with the same or better quality 
in three months. And then as, a, as, an, as an executive, you have to ask yourself or should be asking yourself the question, why? Why does one plant that's right next door say they can do it in three months with the same or better quality when the other plant that says they can do it, they can't do it any faster than every six months. And when you discover that, what, what you really discover is there's a lack of governance strategies that's common across both. And the plant that probably does it in three months has better QA and QSA practices. They find the flaws quicker. And not only do they find the flaws quicker, the QA, QC practices and the governance practices, the people responsible for those are empowered. And what does that mean? They're empowered to say to the folks on the line or the folks building the system, you cannot pass go. You cannot move your car down the line until it meets these, you got it, standards, these standards. So certain QA and QC practices become standards. And on those lines, there's a certain standard for quality. And what that means is those governance strategists, the governance planners, the good governance people are exercising governance at the quality level and are empowered to send things back and say, look, we're not going to produce this car unless it meets these standards. And so what happens, people on the line go, well, if I really want my car to move forward and I want to build another new car and get paid, I have to meet the standards because the governance people will continually send it back until we do. So we better learn good QA, good QC, good governance strategies, and then they can get more efficient because the people on the line start to figure out what they're doing wrong. And that's where that retrospective metric comes into play that we started this discussion with, or one of them that we started with. And, and so good governance is absolutely essential across the board. Now, if as an, as an executive or as a director of both of these plants that are building cars, you then say, well, we're going to take the best practices. You know, the culture in plant two is different, but we're going to take the best practices. We're going to take the governance. We're going to take the QA, QC, and the standards from plant one. And we're going to uh, we're going to work with plant two to make sure that they can improve their productivity from six months and bring it down to three months. So they're producing the same quality car or better in three months time frame. We're going to cut their build time in half. What you find or what usually is found is that in plant B or team B, the governance procedures are lack or missing. And then what the other thing you might find is you get this thing that Cindy talked about in one of the last podcasts, you get these drive-by requirements that are distracting people on the line from applying the standards properly or following the build procedures, which is causing delays in the build line. The drive-by requirement is somebody inside of plant B walks up to a builder who's the best one on the line and says, oh, by the way, we have a customer asked for customization. Can you just weld this on to this door and make sure that it meets all the rest of the quality specs? And, you know, because this customer wants this thing, you know, wants two side mirrors, for example, or whatever the case is, wants four doors or instead of two doors or wants six doors or wants a stretch limo. And so you get these drive-by requirements that, produce these one-offs. And when the one-offs get into play in the production line, that slows things down. Or maybe you've got people who are lazy. And I, and I hate to say this, but humans by nature are lazy. And you've got these people on the line who say, I can slip anything past QA 
or anything past good governance because I never see it come back and I still get paid. So why bother? So I'll just do half a weld or I'll just, I'll weld it, I'll spot weld the mirror on in this one place, even though I'm supposed to do it in two places and I do it in one place and it's good enough, right? So the quality drops. Why? Because they can do 10 more mirrors faster, but the quality drops. And then when it gets to QA, QC, they don't send anything back. They sit there and do the job over again. So this is part of the problem. If QA, QC and governance is told, well, you're not empowered to send things back, to prevent things from reaching production. And instead, QA, QC take on the task of development that the developers should have fixed in the first place. Now you've got a problem. Now you've got double timelines. Now you've got triple timelines. Now it takes twice as long and your product is half as good. And so this is what happens, right? To use a real world analogy uh, across teams that are lacking good governance. And more specifically, the, the other part is empowering the governance people, the QA, QC people. And this is a mistake that corporations make. I see all the time. They, they, they develop these wonderful governance procedures out of the gate. And then they task some people with it. But the director who's responsible for managing the governance, that's his or her second job. It's not really a focus of theirs. And so what happens is the governance people aren't allowed to send anything back to development. You can't do anything. This is the way it comes across. You can't do anything that impacts the production delivery cycle or rate. And I've heard that so many times. And that's just wrong. Because you want to slow down production until you get the quality up, until you do the retrospective, until you force the people doing the builds to fix what they've been building, to adhere to the standards. Once they get good at it, once they realize where the flaws in their workmanship are, then they can become uh, 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 master craftsmen. Then they can become better, faster, cheaper with better quality. That's how that works. That's how quality improves. And I've done enough studies with quality on these subjects to understand this. In fact, once upon a time, I actually worked with Larry English, one of the what we call the fathers of TQM or total quality, uh, total quality uh, <laughs> management. Management, right? So, so this is important to think about. QA, QC, good governance, and empowering those governance and QA people to do the right thing, to make sure that developers are following the standards. And this is how people get better. And so this is why I, I stopped on this one point and said, hey, look, you know, this is a common mistake across enterprise analytics around the world. It's a mistake for data scientists and their productivity. It's a mistake in just about any, including operational system builds as well. That that's a whole nother ball of wax. But these are things that we really work with the teams at companies implementing the Data Vault 2 solutions to get right out of the gate. And we talk with management, we talk about talk about it with executives. And and when they do get it right, the results are astounding. Some of this can be seen in, and I, I said this before in a Kickstart project that we did with a large uh, uh, distributor. Um, we had an original team that said we did in seven days using some of these principles, what took the original team, I think it was six months to accomplish with the same data, the same work product and so on. So having these kinds of metrics, it's important to understand that when you get good at it and they did it with a coach. In fact, we had two coaches on that one site. And when you get good at this kind of thing, you can see this acceleration 
and a higher quality product over and over and over again. And in the manufacturing world, you, you may know this as just-in-time manufacturing with good governance and quality specifications at each point of, of delivery, right? Before the car can move down the auto assembly line, it gets inspected. And then sometimes it's inspected by machines and other times inspected by people. It just depends on what you're looking for. But all of those metrics are important. Enablement and empowerment at the, at the quality level is important. And this is where the, the best practices and strategies come into play. As a final thought for uh, this list of, if a group is new to Data Vault, what, what is the last recommendation for us from us? Uh, I think, I personally believe that engaging an authorized EV2 trainer as a coach, and we mentioned this in one of the last podcasts, as a coach, at least for the first few sprints, just beyond training is important because the value you get out of coaching can be phenomenal, especially in these ways of establishing good governance and best practices, especially in these ways of aligning your team or cross-functional teams or even multiple teams spread around the world. So a trainer for a coach is a great thing. And you're not just coaching. You don't engage the trainer to just coach the technical people or the implementation team. We actually work with the business analysts. We work with the directors. We work with the scrum leads. We work with the C-levels sometimes. And, and, and to fine tune some of the ideologies, to fine tune some of the expectations, to assist where you know, some of the holes are missing. And it, again, you don't need a coach as a full time on any of these efforts. And, and you, can, you can then engage the coach and for biannual reviews, or uh, when you get really good at it, you can do yearly reviews for you know, five, six, seven years. I have some customers I've worked with for probably close to eight or nine years now, and they're humming along quite well. They bring me in maybe for one day nowadays, uh, after seven years of the process, one day to review everything from top to bottom, to talk to management and so on. It's not a full assessment level and it doesn't cost uh, the same as a full assessment. It's a one day coaching session and we sort of go through it and we present our findings. But I think this is important. Cindy, do you have any uh, final thoughts on coaching and, and what that might look like? Or do you have any stories where it's really helped? I think coaching can help substantially. Coaching includes though coaching the business, as you said before, you need to have the business embedded. We started talking about, you know, what do you, you know, how do you uh, build a new team? And about this, the concept of, you know, the agile method and how you embed that, for example. So if I go back and I say, well, how do you start a new team up? If a business is truly dedicated to doing agile, then they're going to commit business resources to the team as well and embed that. So coaching, from my perspective, everything doesn't fall on IT. And we talked about good governance, for example. These things don't fall on IT with regard to establishing the governance program, for example. These are truly hand-in-hand -hand business and IT collaborative efforts. That kind of understanding needs to be very clear to the business, and you need to have that buy-in because that's going to touch everything else the team is doing. And so that includes the coaching piece of it. If you bring a coach in to help you get your, your I would say, your, your development, your technical processes running, but you don't include the, the business, embedded business functional people in with that whole coaching effort, 
you're only dealing with half of what potentially could be an issue moving forward. You want part of what a coach does is help the business and IT work together in a collaborative fashion to ensure that you're getting the best work product out. So coaching to me, I think is, is important. I personally like to take the stance of being extremely strategic and tactical, sort of like pulling in, you know, pulling someone in to help your team get moving and then stepping out and then coming back in on, you know, in a brief fashion to, to really help the team move, you know, sort of call the coach in when you need them. You know, if you have a problem you've never seen before and let them guide you and then let the team move forward. It's uh, it's like any other long-term educational program. I, I think when you think about it, you know, there's, as you, you start kindergarten, you go into elementary school, right? You have teachers that are coaching you along the way. It's the same process. You get into high school, you go to college. Those are things that those are steps in educational maturity and your coach should be helping you get over the hurdles to learn the next thing, to open up your mind on how to deal with new problems and, and then letting you practice that. So uh, there's a lot to be gained in coaching with regard to letting the team get their hands on a problem, coaching them through a way of thinking. I think a lot of it is the experience a coach brings with looking at a problem from a different perspective or optic, and then let the team have their aha moment when it starts to click in, right? And see them work together with the business. So, and I've seen the business come up with some pretty phenomenal, <laughs> you know, sort of technical approaches by stepping back and saying, you know, we've been doing this business process this way. And, you know, actually, I kind of think it might work better if we look at the data from this perspective. Maybe we need to make a change in the way that we are actually functionally working with this data that you're seeing on your end. So there's a lot of things that can come out of it, you know, discovery wise. Anyway, those are just some thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this part one of building a new data vault team. We're now going to end this podcast and move on to part two in the next podcast, building a new data vault team. And in part two, we're going to talk about roles that should attend training and what that means. And then of course, we're going to talk about as well, the best point to engage tool vendors and consultants. So we hope you join us in part two of building a new data vault team. Take care. I'm Dan Listed. And I'm Cindy Myerson. Have a great day.